Welcome back to the Going Coastal podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, John Miller. And I'm also one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. Today, we want to alert you at the beginning of the show to stay tuned to the end of the episode to learn more about the Student and New Professionals Mentoring Program and for some reminders about upcoming ASBPA Coastal events, including the ASBPA Coastal Summit. So if you're a frequent listener of this podcast, you'll know that we have some running themes or topic areas that we bring forward throughout the year, such as Coastal Policy, Student Research Spotlight. This uh, episode that we're going to focus on professional development, and in particular, the uh, specific topic is the publication process. Joining us today to talk about this, we have Beth Shadone, a research assistant professor at North Carolina State University and managing editor of the Shore and Beach of Shore and Beach, the Journal of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, and Tim Kana, founder and president of Coastal Science and Engineering, and a frequent author and also publication reviewer. So, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Welcome. So, before we dig into the details of what we want to talk to you all about today. Uh, we always like to find out a little bit about our guests, expose our uh, audience, students, new professionals to different careers and, and different aspects of the coastal field. Um, so with that, I would, uh, I'll ask you, Beth, to maybe just describe a little bit about your background and what you do and where you are and how you got there. And then we'll kind of go from there. Thanks, John. Um, so I have a little bit of a unique background as far as someone who's in academia, I got my PhD back in 2001. After that, I worked for the Sea Grant Extension Program in South Carolina for a few years, and then I worked in private consulting for about four more years. Um, And uh, probably about 2006, 2007, um, when my kids were young, I stopped doing consulting and I took a part-time position teaching at North Carolina State, teaching the introductory fluid mechanics class. And ever since I've been working here part-time, sometimes teaching, sometimes doing research. In recent years, I've focused more on the research. um, And I've also been privileged to stay involved with ASBPA ever since I was a grad student in the 90s. And now I've been working since approximately 2006 uh, with the journal and serving as a managing editor to coordinate the publication process. Wow, you think you think you know somebody and then you find out even more about them. We thought you were going to be valuable based off of your uh, contributions as editor, but you you touched on so many things in your introductory statement there that I think uh, we're going to circle back and ask you a bunch of really interesting questions. Um, Tim, uh, that's a hard one to follow. Um, But why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Uh, I got my start at Johns Hopkins University and I was studying suspended sediment in Chesapeake Bay with Dr. Jerry Schubel, who was an incredible science manager to work for at the time. And after uh, a stint there, I decided to go back to graduate school and I was interested in suspended sediment in general, uh, but I was tired of working on clays in Chesapeake Bay and thought, well, let's, maybe I can do something with sand. And I latched on to a program at the University of South Carolina under Dr. Miles Hayes and ended up uh, being one of his students. And if any of you listening uh, have met Miles in the past, you'll know what a force of nature uh, and influence in the profession he was. So, I joined the program at USC, uh, thought I would just finish a master's, but I ended up getting into a full PhD research. And in the course of that, I had opportunities to attend great conferences like Coastal Sediments. We have another one coming up in April. In fact, I encourage any of you out there listening to uh, consider attending. I was doing some really interesting research and that gave me opportunities to publish and going to these conferences was just a a life changing experience for me. So I kind of carried on that tradition into consulting. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of stop here, but I got into consulting because when I graduated with a PhD, there was only one faculty position in the entire country. This is around 19, 
79. And uh, fortunately, I had opportunities with the consulting to just carry on, including some of the PhD research that I was doing. So kind of one thing led to another, and I'm still publishing or trying to publish after all these years. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. We had to, I think we had to invite Tim on because we've had folks from the other USC on, so now we had to have to balance it out. So we had the California and the Carolina contingency. <laughs> so I've, I've got a ton of questions. I don't know, Marissa, do you want to chime in? Is there a specific aspect that uh, you found interesting and want to follow up on? Well, I have to say you guys have um, very impressive resumes, especially uh, with your contributions to the coastal fields, it seems. Um, I guess, I don't know if Either of you want to expand on a little bit more about like your research before we dive into turning that research into a publication? I'll go first on that one. Um, my research over the past few years has focused on coastal infrastructure vulnerability, um, primarily transportation systems in looking at the challenges that are being faced across the country as um, continued long-term erosion, um, sea level rise, climate change impacts continue to impact these systems. What are the vulnerabilities and what are potential mitigation alternatives? Right now, my research is focused in North Carolina. I've been doing some work for North Carolina Department of Transportation on the coastal roadways, and I've just started a project with the Ferry Division. They're looking at doing some long-range planning for their facilities. So we are evaluating the vulnerabilities of those facilities and attempting to provide a roadmap for how they might think about um, ensuring that they can continue that service into the future. Well, John, as for me, uh, I was working on suspended sediment, measuring suspended sediment and breaking waves, which at the time, not too many were, people were uh, sort of stupid enough to try, <laughs> but I was uh, able to get some data that was of widespread interest. And so immediately this relates to coastal erosion and the processes that mold and shape beaches. Um, so I kind of carried that, that fundamental knowledge of how sand is picked up and suspended in, in a surf zone and worked on projects that involve measuring, trying to measure the longshore transport on beaches, published some papers on that for the South Carolina coast. Um, and then we were doing other studies of barrier island evolution, uh, morphological differences between uh, a mesotidal barrier island in a mixed energy setting and those in high energy microtidal settings, such as where Beth Beth studies up in the Outer Banks. And comparing and contrasting the, the two systems was really of great interest. But um, after a few years of studying, we, because we were consultants, we, we were asked for some solutions, not just tell us what's causing erosion, but, but what can we do about it? And so that uh, got us into the business of beach restoration and uh, I'm really proud of the legacy that coastal science and engineering has because we've been, been able to restore quite a few beaches over the last 40 years. It's, it's, it's interesting that when you kind of put together these guest lists, we have a certain direction or I have a certain direction in mind. And then now in speaking with both of you, now this interview can go in many different directions, which is, which is kind of uh, intimidating for me. Um, so, so I think um, let's 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 I guess let's get into the main subject matter of the discussion today, right? So the the publication process, um, and I think what we'll do is we'll 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 start with Beth, um, and the first thing that I'll actually ask Beth to do is maybe introduce Shore and Beach for those of you who may not be familiar with Shore and Beach, as this is a podcast of the Student New Professionals chapter of ASBPA, I think it's only appropriate to introduce the journal of ASBPA. So uh, Beth, why don't you give us a little background about Shore and Beach, what it is, um, 
with what we try to do with Shoreham Beach. Thanks so much, John. Um, I'm so happy to talk about Shorn Beach. It's one of the longest running coastal journals, um, started out as actually just conference proceedings from ASBPA meetings and conferences, and has evolved ever since to a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and what's kind of unique about Shorn Beach is that we accept a very broad range of articles. Um, we want the articles to be of interest to not only our technical experts, but also non-specialized audiences. And we cover lots of different topics relating to the coastal environment. Um, they could be innovative science. They could be, um, as, as Tim has published case studies, um, we also have a number of different um, response to hurricane events papers that we get. Um, recently, we had a whole issue dedicated to thin layer place placement, which is sort of a new technique uh, to restore marshes. So um, we encourage our authors to share their contribution in a way such that people from a wide variety of backgrounds can understand and engage with the content. So um, that's something I think that's kind of unique about Shorn Beach, uh, whereas a lot of journals are more specialized in a specific technical area. We also love to get contributions from our students and new professionals. Um, I will put a plug in there. I think it is probably the first place I publish. Um, I actually think Tim may have reviewed an article of mine years and years ago. Uh, so um, anyway, it's just something that is a, a wonderful benefit of ASBPA membership, and we hope it continues long into the future. Yeah, John, I'll, I'll just add uh, that Shore and Beach strikes that happy balance between the academic side of our business and the, the layman's um, communication side. You know, if you can write a paper that both contributes something significant to the science um, or the engineering on the coast, and at the same time communicate that information in a way that the lay audience can understand it, this is just outstanding training uh, for you as a consultant or as a student of the profession. If you can explain things clearly, concisely, uh, to where anybody from your, your mother to you know, any relative who's a non-expert understands what you, you're talking about, that's, that's a great skill to develop. And, and Shoreham Beach is one of the, the wonderful avenues that we have to get the word out. Uh, that was a, a great, great summation. I think we should just end the interview here because you just pretty much hit on everything that we want to talk about over the next half hour or so. Um, I think, uh, you know, certainly for me, I'm just going to add my own perspective here as a as a young, uh, actually undergraduate student, I'm, I'm fairly certain that Shore and Beach was the first journal um, that I was ever exposed to. Um, I remember running around Stevens, um, you know, in my advisor, Michael Bruno's office and just coming across issues of Shore and Beach and, uh, and then eventually joining ASBPA and getting the, getting the issues. And, you know, certainly that sort of accessibility factor um, you know, uh, is something that made it appealing to me. Um, and it was really a, sort of an intro into the, the, the publishing world. So, um, and now just as a, as an, as an academic with my own students, um, you know, as Beth had mentioned, I think the, uh, the way that Shoreham Beach encourages uh, students, particularly and new professionals to publish um, in Shoreham Beach, I think that's a, that's, something that we look for. Um, I've had a number of students publish in, in Shore and Beach over the years. Um, I don't know, Marissa, have you ever had any articles published in Shore and Beach? Not as a first author, but from my master's uh, program, the group that I was in, one of my lab mates first author, and I was just kind of added on there as I helped out a little bit. So that technically was 
my first name in a journal, which is pretty cool, or my first time being in a journal. Um, I do receive the physical Shore and Beach quarterly. So the quarterly, um, I guess, I don't want to call it a magazine, but it, it's kind of like a, a magazine-ish. Uh, those are different than the special issues. Is that right? Um, we actually generally incorporate those into the four issues of the year. So this year we are planning on having a general issue for the winter 2023. Then we have an upcoming dedicated issue on coastal flooding for de- uh, spring. Then we'll have another general issue. And then I'm very excited about our final dedicated issue of fall 2023, which will be about Hurricane Sandy looking back since it's been now over 10 years since that occurred. So we do actually incorporate the dedicated issues into our four issues per year. Awesome. When you submit a paper to Shore and Beach, the turnaround time is excellent, in my opinion, compared to some of the other big journals out there. And so that's a good consideration. If you're a master's student, say, and you've got a deadline to get your thesis out, and some universities uh, publishing papers can count as part of your thesis. Many of us have done that in in years past. So it's important to go with a journal that's not going to take two years to get you into print. And uh, Shorten Beach is, is a very good outlet in that respect. That's always good to know especially for folks in a time crunch. Um, I guess I'm wondering what the overall timeline is. Like for one, Beth, you just listed out what the topic areas or what the focus of each quarterly uh, issue of Shore and Beach will be for the next year. Is there a place for, uh, for that information? Is there a place where that information exists? Like people can plan out years, like plan to target specific issues somewhere uh, or, Otherwise, like what's the general timeline for, you know, if you were to submit, does it wait? Does your, does your, does Shore and Beach accept rolling submissions, I guess is where I'm going. Yes, we definitely encourage rolling submissions because sometimes the review process takes longer than other times. If there are maybe multiple rounds of revision sometimes, then that can take a little bit longer. That doesn't happen all the time, but it can occasionally happen. So uh, we do accept rolling submissions and those would go generally into our um, our general issues, not the dedicated ones. The dedicated ones do have specific deadlines. We actually don't right now have a place where we publish the entire editorial calendar for the year, but maybe we should, that's a great idea. Generally, we advertise the upcoming dedicated issues separately for each one with their own deadlines um, via different Google groups or mailing lists that we send out to. But now that you've said that, I'm thinking maybe it would be a good idea to start posting our editorial calendar on the website. Thanks, Marissa. Hey, no problem. Full of good ideas. And I know a great place for it to go is on the ASPPA.org website on that shore and beach page. Yeah, well while we're while we're on the subject of special issues, I'm gonna put in a plug for that Hurricane Sandy 10 year uh, issue as one of the guest editors. If you haven't seen a solicitation for articles that will be coming soon. So just be aware of that deadline if you've got some good research on basically any topic, how things have changed since uh, since Sandy 10 years ago. Um, definitely submit some submit a submit an article because we'll be looking to publish as many good articles as we can. So with that being said, um, Beth, can you kind of take us through like the process? Um, You know, I think many of us who publish frequently might have an understanding of it, but for students and new professionals who may be less familiar with it, like, you know, say you decide that you want to submit an article um, and what happens next? What's the, what's the process? Thanks, John. Um, So we'll depend um, on if you're submitting to a general issue or dedicated issue. If there, if you are submitting to a dedicated issue, there's kind of one extra step. Um, Usually our guest editors, of which you are one and have been other times, thank you. Um, We will normally solicit abstracts prior to actually soliciting full papers so that our guest editors can review the abstract submittals and decide whether 
each potential paper fits with their vision for the for the issue. Sometimes we get a lot of submittals, which is wonderful, but and but we can't include all of them in a dedicated issue or a special issue. So occasionally we'll just invite those authors to submit instead to a general issue instead of um, being part of those dedicated issues. So if you're submitting to a dedicated issue, there's an abstract submittal. If you're just submitting to a general issue, you would prepare your manuscript. And let me mention that we do have our full guidelines for submission on our website, and we even have an EndNote template for references. And I would kindly ask that everyone ensure that their submittals meet our submission guidelines because that definitely streamlines the process. So once we receive the paper, we also ask that you suggest a list of five re potential reviewers. We send the manuscript out for review. Once we get our reviews back, we send those to the authors along with an editorial decision, whether it's accepted, accepted with revisions, or if it's declined. And generally, if it's declined, if we have feedback for the author, we may ask them to resubmit. So it's not necessarily a complete you know, forget forget it, you can never publish this material here. It just may need kind of more revisions and a, and a re-review than if it's just accepted with some revisions. Uh, and then once those final revisions are made, we get the final manuscript. We ask for all of the figures and such in specific format so that we can ensure the best publication quality. Because as Marissa noted, we still publish a hard copy. A lot of journals don't actually. So we still publish a hard copy that, um, as Marissa said, kind of has a magazine-y look to it. We do try to have, you know, make the figures nice and appealing and large and make it very readable in the hard copy format. We also have a digital version. Uh, and so, and then you're published. And we do also provide our authors with the PDF of their final manuscript in addition to two hard copies. And of course, Everyone has the opportunity to order additional copies if they'd like to do that of the hard copies. I'd like to uh, add something about uh, scientific integrity, which is so important in our profession. Uh, if you're thinking about publishing in any journal, you want to be sure that you're being as rigorous as possible with your, uh, the statements that you make and one of the pitfalls that many people find when they're first publishing is that they're trying to promote their research or promote a product or promote a technique or something. And sometimes it comes off sounding like a big sales pitch. And I would just uh, caution everybody to uh, step back and you know, reread your manuscript before you submit it and ask yourself, is this... Am I, am I really being a promoter or am I being a scientist and engineer here trying to present objective data? Um, a journal like Shore and Beach or Journal of Coastal Research is not in the business of promoting products. And so that's a red flag right away to editors. Uh, if you send in a manuscript that sounds like a, a product endorsement, just be aware that you'll, you'll likely get the, the manuscript back pretty quick. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Cause I was actually going to ask you, Tim, as a, as a reviewer, what are some of the things that you look for as you're reviewing an article? Is there anything else in addition to sort of that self or the, the promotion aspect that, that might uh, cause you to, uh, I guess, look closely um, at, at a manuscript or potentially even reject the manuscript? Uh, sure. Um, you know, obviously, when, well, take our business, for example. We're, we're in the beach nourishment business, and you always want to put your best foot forward to a client and say, you know, this is what you should do. Uh, the client ends up spending a lot of money in restoring a beach, and uh, it, obviously it's nice if you can provide information that, demonstrates that the project has some longevity, it, it paid for itself, it, it provided extra value and so on. But you just have to be very 
careful about that um, and avoid overhyping. And sometimes a little humbleness is good. So if, if there were problems that you've faced in the project or the, the research that you're there's nothing wrong with saying what the problems were because people that read these papers are looking to improve upon them. first learn something and then second maybe come up with some ideas for improving upon it that's how science is advances over time uh, so what was considered state-of-the-art 50 years ago may no longer be applicable not so much because the people 50 years ago were bad scientists, but because we have so many more tools at our disposal to, to measure more accurately, uh, to come up with new theories of how the coast evolves and so on. So uh, it, it, it's often a good, in my opinion, to say, well, this was the problem with my research and here's things that uh, I think would be good for future research. And many of the academics, like John, you know, I, I enjoy reading his papers because he he's he's very good at, at doing that. Yeah, I think I think I'll just add my own perspective to that as somebody who gets asked to review half a dozen articles a month, it seems like sometimes. Um, you know, certainly f- for me, I would agree with Tim 100%. For, for me, two of the biggest red flags are, one, a lack of awareness of what's been done previously. So if you don't have a good background or literature review, um, to me, that's just a, a red flag that you haven't done your homework. Um, and then I would say the other thing is, is exactly what, what, what Tim would say in, in terms of overselling your results. I think, you know, the number of times that I call somebody out for saying that the results are significant with no definition of what significant means, statistically significant significant as in moving the field forward like you need to be a little bit more uh as tim said realistic humble about um what the results actually show so for me those are kind of two two keys that i look for in a review not necessarily things that will cause me to reject a manuscript outright but certainly you would expect a comment back if i was reviewing your paper you know for those types of uh i guess shortcomings in in articles so we're a little biased in our perspectives in when it comes to selecting a journal. We definitely, we're pushing Shore and Beach. We got Shore and Beach people. It's ASBPA, but I'm sure that's not the only journal that either or any of us that have published in. So I guess um, some clarification is, you know, how do you find the right journal for your research? Maybe Shore and Beach isn't the right avenue for a particular um, project or or research area. So I, either Beth or Tim, what are, what are your recommendations for uh, a young a student or a new professional looking to find the right journal for their work? The easiest thing to publish in is usually a proceedings paper in a conference. You can submit an abstract. It doesn't take you too long to prepare that. And you can, you know, once you get used to developing these papers, you should be able to knock out a, a proceedings paper. Uh, my benchmark is a couple of days intense effort. Um, you should be able to get a good draft together and then maybe another day to polish it up. Uh, so, you know, that three days is a pretty significant commitment when you're a consultant on the time clock. When it comes to a referee journal like Shore and Beach or Journal of Coastal Research or Journal of Geophysical Research, um, with increasing prestige and impact factor of each journal, the amount of effort that you have to put in necessarily rises significantly. Um, and it's for me, it's been very difficult to publish in the, the very high-end uh, journals that have lots of prestige, like Journal of Geophysical Research. Um, I've, I've gone to some second tier, I, I call them second tier, but say the uh, Journal of Marine Geology is, is very good. Journal of Coastal Engineering is, is very good and difficult to publish in. And, you know, we've managed to get some papers in there, but it's, it's taken many more hours of work, refinement, uh, 
the review process is a little, a little more difficult. Um, but I, I consider that a challenge, and especially as a consultant. One thing that's helped me, I'll, I'll wrap this little thought up quickly, is uh, if you're a consultant and you're, it looks like you're not going to be very billable or very busy for the next uh, month or so, that's a good time to think about um, knocking out a paper. And uh, so that, that's how I've done some of my bigger um, papers in the past. I'll add to, um, I think, Tim, maybe your company is a little unique in that they do seem to prioritize publishing. Um, not every consulting firm really, I think, emphasizes that quite as much since they're so focused as as everyone is on the deliverables of their billable projects so i think that's something that's pretty neat about your firm um and how y'all contribute to the field well yeah thanks beth <laughs> i mean that's that's why we call ourselves coastal science and engineering <laughs> which we try to keep the science in it but i will say this um my motivation to publish really from the, the earliest times, was uh, I felt it was a way to uh, remain in with the, the big guys, the, the big guys in our field. And, you know, I always uh, strove to uh, be respected by academics as well as consultants. And I felt, you know, if I could be re respected to some degree by the leaders of our field, you know, people like Dr. Dean from Florida and, um, doc, you know, Dr. Weigel from California and Moro O'Brien, people that I was privileged to, to, to work with and get to know early in my career. If you can publish an article, present a paper, that's, uh, the academics like with, at that level are interested in and, uh, you know, give you a little tension, boy, that, that just does you a world of good as far as the credibility you gain as a consultant. Um, and it's, it's just helped me to know in, in my profession, because I feel like I can go to a community forum and if I can speak articulately, uh, at the level, a, you know, some of the top scientists, people like like John Miller right here on the call, you know, John's a, one of the top scientists in our field and uh, engineer. And, you know, if, if I can be perceived to be on that same level or even close to that, I feel like I've set myself apart a little bit from the other uh, consultants that I have to compete with. So that I encourage that with all of our staff here. John, I think you have a fan. Tim, Tim is Tim is way too kind. I can only hope to be on his level one day. But but honestly, the you know that 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 conversation is exactly why we were picking out who to who to invite on this podcast. I mean, everybody is aware of the academic publish or perish kind of uh, axiom, right? Um, but it's less common to find publishing. Uh, in the consulting world. And it's specifically why, you know, we sought out Tim because of the reputation uh, of the company for promoting that publication within and just trying to understand, because, you know, we, our audience is split between students and new professionals. So students obviously know why they should publish and the benefits. So I think Tim just articulated perfectly you know, what is the reason why a consultant would want to publish, right? So it's about achieving that respect within your field, which then only enhances your reputation. So when you're going out and looking for clients, right, to have that solid backing, um, I, I think is, um, is extremely important. So uh, I wish more consulting engineering firms would allow for especially the young professionals um, to find the time to publish. Um, and I think Tim hit on it earlier about, you know, when you have those gaps in your billable time is, and that happens in every industry, whether it's coastal engineering or accounting, 
right? You get to a point where you have some time and some space. And, you know, we're fortunate that in this field, we have opportunities to publish. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's a great, great way to uh, maximize that sort of downtime. So one thing that I did want to touch on is we were talking about where to publish and, um, and you know, that, you know, the subject matter dictates that the, the rigor that, or the time that you have to put into a publication di- dictates some of that. Um, I wanted to maybe ask about the idea of sort of the open access pay to play journals versus the more traditional, um, journal model. And if, if there's any, uh, I don't want to say, I don't put people on the spot and say opinion about it, but, you know, we have our certain feeling about it in the academic world. So I just, you know, how has that changed the public, the publication process? And maybe we'll start with Beth first. Um, it's funny. I was just thinking, I wonder if I should bring up open access journals. (laughs) So you, uh, yeah, I was sort of thinking of that, but, um, you know, it's funny because I will say when, when, these journals um, kind of started really coming to the forefront. It was something that I definitely hesitated about, like, oh, I'm not sure I want to publish there. And, you know, of course, they won't leave you alone with reviewing requests. I'm sure you're getting this too. Um, But uh, I have actually published a few papers in those open access type journals. And I will say that the review process is, you know, it had a very fast turnaround, but I would not say that the reviews were exceptionally easy, (laughs) at least for the papers that we published. Um, So I think they have their place. Um, I do think within, I probably don't know if I should speak for my whole department. I will say that some people in our department don't, um, you know, don't value them as much as sort of like your traditional journal. And in addition, you have to also find, you know, a couple thousand dollars for publication charges. The positive of an open access journal is that then, you know, anyone can access that. They don't have to have access to a university library or a subscription. So I think they do have their place. Um, I'm not really sure if I'm very pro or very con open access journals. I think they have their place. And I, I don't, I mean... I guess maybe I don't speak for all, but the one that I've published in, I definitely think that it had a pretty thorough set of reviewers for our for our papers, although they didn't give us a whole lot of time to turn things back around. <laughs> so I guess that's my non-opinion opinion. Um, I'll just say that I have virtually no experience with publishing in open journals. I'm, maybe it's because I'm old school and a little bit older than, than Beth, but uh, you know, I, I think there are enough journals out there in the, you know, the mainstream journals that are fine. That's, that's my challenge is to find one of those to publish in. So I'm wondering if you guys would be able to quickly break down this nebulous impact factor. So Tim, you mentioned it as the impact factor of the journal increases, so does your level of effort to publish and and prepare a manuscript for that type of journal. So I guess, what is the impact factor? What does it actually mean in layman's terms and why is it important? Uh, Well, I guess... (laughs) Beth, Beth knows much more about this because she had to research it for the Shore and Beach impact factor, we had discussions of this on, the, on our board, our editorial board. Um, but the impact factor um, will give you more exposure, more notoriety, and it's you know it's like the the difference between playing in the major leagues in baseball or playing in you know single A or double A baseball, uh, or, you know, the minor leagues. Um, so, you know, we can all aspire to publishing in the journal of geophysical research, for example. Um, but I, I don't get as much out of that myself because most of the articles are a little bit too high on the academic side for my profession. Um, beach restoration, but I do 
get a lot out of journals like Marine Geology and uh, Journal of, is it Coast and, Coast and Ocean? <laughs> John, help me out here. Um, the Journal of Coastal Research, of course, these are all really right up, up our alley for what I do in my profession. So, Beth, you, Tim said that you kind of, you put together as the edit- editor for Shore and Beach, you developed the impact factor for it. So what, what is it that goes into it? What makes the impact factor for a journal? I will say we at Shore and Beach don't yet have an impact factor. It's something that is determined by the, what's called the Web of Science. Um, that's an indexing service that's currently operated by Clarivate. Um, and it's sort of some kind of a calculation of number of citations um, divided by number of publications. And then they figure out a, a numerical index. Um, but they don't just, it's not automatic that every single journal has an impact factor. You have to apply to be included in the um, web of science. And it's a, it's kind of a long process. And there are a number of different editorial requirements that they have issued um, that we as the editorial team associated with Shore and Beach are still working on. Um, They require the presence of an ethics statement. Our editorial board's been working on developing that. Um, Several other um, different different requirements that they have that we have not yet been able to meet, Um, but we are in the process of trying to go ahead and get that because we know, especially for our academic contributors that that's very important it's something generally on your in your view that you have to state what's the impact factor of different journals that you've published in um, so we're at Shorm Beach we are still in the process and it is this um, web of science operated by Clarivate that determines it for each journal there are some other factors too that are starting to be used. There's something called like an H factor, I think, and I think Google Scholar has some kind of a influence factor now. So, uh, for years, the impact factor was kind of the only game in town as far as determining how influential a journal was. But as some of these other things are merging, um, maybe we'll be able to demonstrate the. Um, importance of Shorn Beach, maybe using some of these other factors before we get the Web of Science um, impact factor indexing, hopefully. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll just add to that, that, uh, you know, as, as Beth said, the impact factor used to be the only game in town, but now it, it's much more broad and at least the more progressive universities are considering, you know, a wider range of of like true impacts, right? So how do you measure impact? And I'll just use the example of uh, a, a white paper that I helped author for ASBPA on beach nourishment um, evolution. And that's been published. It's, it's I believe it was published in Shore and Beach and it definitely exists on research, my ResearchGate account. And the number of reads that that, uh, you know, very short, very succinct, but very useful piece of information uh, achieved its, you know, on the order of several thousand at this point, which far exceeds anything that any of my more scientific uh, research papers have gotten. So in terms of if you're measuring impact, you know, there's a lot of different ways to measure impact. I think the more progressive universities are, are, are recognizing that. So it's good that Shorn Beach is heading that impact factor route, but um, it's also good that uh, universities are recognizing other, other means of impact. John, Marissa, I, I wanted to mention um, another uh, avenue for publication for listeners. Uh, we've done a number of book chapters where we've been invited to contribute to, uh, uh, you know, the Encyclopedia of Coastal Engineering, that, that sort of thing. And those are a lot of fun to do because, number one, you're invited, so it kind of forces you into a deadline. And number two, you generally have an editor who is going to be encouraging and helpful in in formulating your uh, your outline and your you know the whole th- thrust of your paper. And I find those very enjoyable uh, 
publications to, to work on. Um, you know that it's going to result in a publication. It still is a lot of work, a lot of vetting that goes on, but, um, you know, the end result is usually a hardcover textbook or something like that. Um, and so I, I encourage you, if you have a professor or some colleagues that you're working with and, you know, at your place of employment, um, this is a really good, good outlet for, for a lot of people. That's great. So we have book chapters, we have conference paper, conference proceedings, and then submission to either an open access journal or the pay to publish journals, um, you know, increasing impact factors or other quantifiers or qualifiers to describe impact. These are all options available for students and new professionals, I guess, just uh, from your perspective for both Beth and Tim, um, for what advice would you get for students in terms of, you know, just a place to start? Uh, maybe they don't have as encouraging of an academic advisor than others. Uh, I feel like there's a broad range there. So for students who are encouraged to publish versus students who aren't, what are some tools, resources, or advice for where they could get started in that process? Well, when you're looking for, you know, what would be a good journal to publish in, one thing that we always encourage our students to do is look at your references. Are you citing a ton of things in Estuarine Coastal and, and Shelf Science? You might want to send it there. Are you citing a lot of things in geomorphology? You might want to send it there. So that's kind of maybe a first step. Um, if you're citing a lot of articles from a particular journal, that might be somewhere that you look at to submit potentially. Um, and I, I also think lately more universities have people, uh, faculty members on staff that work with the students on technical writing. We have a person in our department who teaches a technical writing course, and she also does numerous workshops um, throughout the year on this topic. So I would encourage students to avail themselves of those resources. Most universities have some kind of writing center and some kind of technical writing support. And I think those people are so talented and they have seen it all, right? Like they know how to edit things. They know how to state a hypothesis. And I think they can really help students be able to kind of focus what they've done and articulate their hypothesis, their research questions, and what they have learned. Uh, that, Beth, you reminded me of a class I took in graduate school that had nothing to do with coastal geology, but it was called Magazine Article Writing, taught in the journalism school by the former editor of the Saturday Evening Post. He left the post and came down as a professor emeritus down at USC. And uh, I just decided, oh, that, that might be kind of fun to do. Little did I know, he forced us to write 1,500 to 3,000 word magazine article quality pieces every week. <laughs> and so that forced us into uh, working on deadlines, doing lots of writing and of course writing a particular topic that it might be assigned to you that you know nothing about. So it's the same process and just the sheer amount of work that was required was, was very helpful to me um, in knocking out abstracts and, and papers for uh, a lot of the proceedings and conferences that I've gone to over the years. If you want to be a better writer, be a better reader. Right, so read the journal articles. Right, see how they're written, um, how language is used, because scientific writing is different from other types of writing. So the more you read, the more you become a better writer, and then obviously the more you write, you become a better writer. So I think there's really no substitute from kind of just familiarizing yourself with the journals in the field um, to kind of give you that head start. Um, one thing I did want to touch on really uh, briefly because we are coming up on the end of our time, but um, have from both of you, have, have you noticed any trends in sort of publication over the past 
decade or several decades because I have my own thoughts on this and I'll share them at the end. But I'm I'm just curious if if uh, Beth, you have you and you and Tim have had have noticed anything. I guess I think that um, being that there just are so many more journals now, um, I think that. It used to be people would sort of wait, I think, longer to publish kind of like their big one paper with their new advance. And now we see, I think, more incremental um, publications because of, because there are just so many more journals and so many more opportunities to get that information out there. And the speed, I think, of research has just accelerated over time. Yeah, I, I don't have a... As, as Good at as, as much familiarity as, as Beth and uh, some of you all who, who publish more than I do. Uh, but I, I've noticed the trend of multi author papers uh, seems to be more common these days. And uh, I agree with Beth. There's a lot of it is incrementalism. Uh, we don't see as many papers that I would consider, oh, this is going to be a classic uh, in 20 years, but perhaps that's just the perspective of time. As you get older, you, you get a little more jaded in your, your view of things, but certainly there's some really good stuff going on out there. Uh, new topics, thin layer disposal, it's a hot topic in our field now, and uh, living shorelines. Uh, so, you know, the question of which are going to be the classic papers in these topics 20 years from now, I couldn't answer that from, from what I see in the literature right now, but I'm sure that some, something will come out of it um, eventually. I promise I did not ask that question ahead of time. We did not, but that, but the, the responses there actually match my own perspective. And I was just curious, um, to hear whether or not you're perceiving the same things. And I would ag agree 100% with both what Beth and, and Tim said, you know, certainly my perspective is that you do tend to see more of these. Um, whereas it used, it used to be long, thorough, complete, almost works of art. Uh, now they're like pencil sketches, right? And not that they can't have valuable information in them, but these shorter articles kind of match, I don't want to say a societal trend towards, the way that we ingest information in shorter sound bites or snippets, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing, but I, I you know, I think part of that might come from that whole public publish or perish, you know, vernacular. And if, if you don't publish, you know, 32 articles a year, then you're not a successful academic. But I would argue <laughs> if you publish 32 articles a year, you're not publishing anything worthwhile. Right. So like there's a, it's a balancing act there. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's, that's definitely one of the things that I had noticed. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, John. Yeah, so that's just, I was just curious to hear your perspectives on that. So, um, you know, the thing that we like to do actually before we wrap up all of our, our, our guests episodes here, um, we do just like to offer you each, you know, a moment to kind of just almost speak off the cuff. In the beginning, you introduced yourself and kind of was kind of open-ended. Um, you know, we'll, we'll leave it open-ended at the end. Um, you know, you both spoke to already kind of advice for students getting into publishing, but um, just in general, students and new professionals, you know, if you could look back and if you have the opportunity to speak to students and new professionals, you know, what kind of advice would you give them just for starting their career and kind of progressing forward in their career? Um, and I think we'll start again. We'll just keep, tends to, we tend to start with Beth. So we'll just start with Beth one more time. Thanks so much, John. Um, I guess my primary piece of advice would be um, don't get too comfortable. <laughs> Maybe that's not a great piece of advice, but always be kind of striving for how can you grow? How can you learn the next big thing? How can you contribute, whether it be to uh, your academia, your consulting firm that you're working with, um, your colleagues? What can you learn from them and what can you share and how can you grow and build your career? I would say, so don't get too comfortable. Keep striving. Yeah, abs absolutely. Beth's, Beth's right about that. And even after 40 years in the business, I still uh, 
get anxious about what am I going to contribute uh, to the literature, to the profession. Uh, and, you know, as you get older, you, you know, you start losing some of your <laughs> faculties and they, they start to go. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm very conscious of that these days, but I can say hanging around with people who are in the coastal research business is just one of the greatest joys in your life. Uh, the, the talent that is attracted to our profession, maybe because it's the attraction of the beach, uh, I don't know, but I just know that some of my best friends, professional colleagues I've developed over the years, they're passionate about this, this business. And being passionate is something that I think will help you help inspire you to want to publish, to want to uh, put your name out there, to, to want to network and interact with, with the great names in the profession and, and, and strive to be one of the, the future great names. So there's plenty to look forward to. And people like myself are ready to talk to you and encourage you along the way. So just give us a call anytime. Well, I think that's great advice to, to, to close on. Um, and it, I don't think it could be said any better. So uh, with that, I would like to thank our guests uh, for joining us. Thank our listeners for listening. Hopefully you'll, you'll keep tuning in. Hopefully we're providing information that you find relevant and valuable. Um, before we do uh, close the show, I want to remind everybody about the Student and New Professionals Chapters uh, Mentoring Program. Um, for coastal professional students, researchers, and advocates, the Student and New Professionals Chapter of ASBPA is planning to launch a new mentoring program, and we want all of you to participate. Uh, students and new professionals are able to sign up and request a mentor, and likewise, professionals can sign up and become a mentor. Uh, based on your application, the Student and New Professionals Chapter will do their best to pair mentor-mentee relationships. Uh, they hope to provide, hope to play matchmaker, foster conversations, and help the next generation of coastal experts find their bearing. And as Tim so eloquently said, you know, find their passion in this amazing, wonderful coastal career um, that I think we all share uh, share our opinion of. If you're interested in this program, uh, head online and find the sign-up form. Uh, student New Professionals Group will contact you after you fill out the form uh, with more details. You can reach out with any questions to ASBPA at, a at to the Student New Professionals chapter at asbpa.smp at gmail.com. I want to remind everybody that the Coastal Summit is coming up in March, uh, between the 21st and the 23rd in Washington, D.C. I think this is the first summit uh, that we've had in three years, first live summit we've had in three years. The theme of this year's summit is partnering for resilient coastal infrastructure. Uh, and this summit will be offered both live and broadcast uh, live via Zoom. Joining us next month will be one of the members of the organizing committee, but don't wait, register now for that event. For those of you that are long-term planners, next year's ASPPA National Coastal Conference will be held in Providence, Rhode Island. You can come visit, you can go visit Marissa. I'm sure she'll invite everybody over for dinner at her house. Uh, the conference is- I don't live there, guys. <laughs> conference is October 11th through 13th. Um, and finally, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, I want you to urge you to consider supporting Going Coastal while aligning your brand with the ASPPA Student and New Professionals chapter. Happy to customize a sponsorship package for your company to deliver on your marketing goals and connect with the next generation of coastal professionals. Uh, you can share your story in top coastal and ocean podcasts and on coastal news today. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, I urge you to contact Tyler Buckingham, our wonderful producer at Tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com backslash advertising. Thank you once again. And until next time.